This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sunday, April 16, 2023. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can support my work and get exclusive access to bonus content at patreon.com slash five minute news. Joining us today is a senior advisor to the Institute for Education, progressive influencer and New York City based public interest attorney. He was former Hillary for America digital organizer. Hi, Von Schroff. Welcome to The Weekend Show. Great to join you. So it's been a very interesting week for the news. Uh, so much happening, aside from Donald Trump, of course, and maybe we'll try during this conversation not to not to mention the T word very much because, you know, he's been getting so much airtime. But there's been a lot going on, certainly in his orbit, and that's something we should look at. I want to, uh, a little bit later, look at Ron DeSantis, who may indeed end up being a, a candidate for, for president going up against Donald Trump. Um, we'll take a look at him and what he's been doing in the last couple of days. This is as uh, Fort Lauderdale is underwater. <laughs> he was in Ohio giving a speech and trying to kind of spread the DeSantis magic around the country. Um, let's look at the conservative mega donor Harlan Crow. Uh, he and his relationship with Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice. But first, uh, we must mention the um, FBI uh, arrest of Jack uh, Tishira. He was uh, arrested on Thursday afternoon without incident at his home in Massachusetts. Um, he was taken into custody in relation to the alleged unauthorized removal, retention and transmission of classified national defense information. And uh, Merrick Garland kind of did a press conference and everybody was like, wow, that was, you know, it's amazing how quickly they caught this guy. But what interested me the most was that on the right, certainly the far right, MAGA Republicans, the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Fox News host Tucker Carlson, are literally hailing this 21-year-old National Guardsman who leaks these secrets online. They're hailing him as a a national hero. And, And that really is the most concerning thing for those of us who are on the side of the United States of America. In, just initially, what, what's your kind of feeling when you when you see MTG and her likes kind of come out with this type of language? Incredibly alarming. I think, you know, to your point, you know, you mentioned this is a far right reaction, but we have to acknowledge that Marjorie Taylor Greene is essentially the acting speaker of the House. I mean, I think it's very clear that Kevin McCarthy is speaker in name only. This is a woman who is on the Homeland Security Committee, siding with basically a traitor over the American people. So it's disgraceful to see. And then I think when you look at a pattern and you see, obviously, it started with Trump. He's their sort of 
God and he is not going to be held accountable for one thing. But then you look at Kyle Rittenhouse, Ashley Babbitt, Egg Gallagher. So basically, as long as you're uh, this recent case in um, Texas where the governor, because Tucker Carlson demanded a pardon for um, Perry, right, who killed a Black Lives Matter protester, they want to pardon him now. So as long as you're a right wing Christian nationalist, you could kill someone and they don't care as long as you're on their side. And that is so dangerous. And it's an, a trend that now we've seen for years and years and years. So um, really a, a bleak state. Mar- Marjorie actually tweeted that uh, Jake Tashira is white, male, Christian, and anti-war. Uh, she's misspelled his name, and she said that makes him an enemy to the Biden regime. I mean, that that in itself is is traitorous language, isn't it? I mean, and as you say, it's not like she's a kind of fringe operator. She is at the very heart of government. She really is often in the speaker's chair. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a ludicrous attack when you think about Joe Biden, who's also a white male American who's, you know, been very vocal about his own faith. I think it's an attack that falls pretty flat. But the reality is they don't need to put forth convincing arguments. They don't need to spell things right. They don't need to sound, you know, competent at anything because they really are so entrenched in partisanship that anything Marjorie Taylor Greene says, she's going to get whatever amount of retweets. And, you know, then, of course, you're going to see it influence the entire right-wing blogosphere and Fox News, and then Trump's going to be saying it, etc. And it's sort of this vicious cycle um, of really stupidity at some point. How do you feel as an American? You know, I'm obviously a, a, a British man living in the, in the U.S., legally, I hasten to add. Um, <laughs> how, how do you feel? Because, you know, this is, this is your Congress. You know, I don't get to vote. This is your Congress. These are your insurrectionists, effectively. You know, these are the people who have overtaken the house i don't take any ownership from, no <laughs> from a from a patri from a patriotic perspective and i suppose you know with your own personal relationship with america and your own timeline i mean how do you feel about what's happening right now i mean i'm an indian american third generation so all four of my grandparents came here from india very young probably around my age um, and grew up with just incredible pride in this country and our democracy Um, And I think we've seen around the world a threat to democracy, but particularly in America, um, this idea that all that's happened over the last few decades kind of under the surface has now come to a boil and they're just blatant in their efforts, whether it's suppressing, you know, the right to choose or just blatant racism from political leaders. What we just saw happen in Tennessee, so concerning to vote out two young black leaders for basically exercising their right to free speech um, about gun violence. So we are in a total crisis moment. And I think my, my greatest fear right now is that people that were sort of energized around 2020 because they really wanted to see Trump out of the White House maybe lose that sense of urgency to some extent because now Joe Biden's been in office for a couple of years. And I think if I could say one thing to those people, it would be please pay attention to what has been happening over even these last two years with the White House being Democrat you know, we still need years more to repair the damage that has been done by the Trump administration and this modern Republican Party. Marjorie Taylor Greene and certainly maybe Republicans in the Tennessee House, some of them might not see you as an American, you know, being a, being a, a third-generation Indian American. Sure. They, they might not see you as American. In fact, I would suggest, based on her tweet, that she says that being white, male, and Christian puts Americans 
first if they meet that criteria. It means they're above the law. Donald Trump is all of those things, although, you know, you could argue on the Christian front, but, you know, he's certainly male and he's certainly white. You know, this is a, I mean, she wanted a national divorce of states. I mean, she also clearly wants a national divorce of, of, of race. Absolutely. But I think, you know, People look at these issues now and they say, well, how did we get here? But we knew all of this in 2015, 2016, during that campaign when Steve Bannon was, you know, Trump's right hand man, basically calling for civil war, being very explicit that that was his agenda and his goal. We knew then he was a white nationalist. So this is really just seeing through what was expected, you know, that many years ago. And of course, We've just seen it increase and grow and grow because so many of our democratic institutions have failed us. And I think a real level of acknowledgement about, you know, what was a great strength of our democracy, sort of so many norms and precedents that hadn't been codified and formalized. And once you don't have that sort of shared sense of purpose or society, it goes away like that. And we've seen that happen. And it will take so long to rebuild that. It's happening outside of the US as well. It's happening in the UK where I'm from. This kind of blame the immigrants, you know, they they had the prime minister in England, Rishi Sunak, who is an an Indian himself. You know, he 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 started a campaign recently called Stop the Boats, right? To kind of stop migrant crossings, but he didn't refer to them as humans or people. He referred to them as boats, stop the boats and you know, it's very interesting to me that, I mean, even if, just to talk about the UK just for a second, that, you know, where we have a, a home secretary and we have a former home secretary and we have the uh, the prime minister, and these are all people of colour, and they are incredibly xenophobic and racist themselves, this kind of very right-wing public school, as we call it in the in the UK, which would be considered private school here. And, and It seems to be like the lines are blurred, you know. It's not just like the white people hating the brown people. Certainly in Europe now, you've got the brown people turning on the brown people. Well, this is a constant theme we've seen, you know. I mean, Nikki Haley launching her campaign, sort of leaning into this idea that she's suddenly a woman of color at 50-plus when she spent her entire career basically hiding that fact. Um, You know, it's a very cynical tactic. We've seen it, you know, throughout history where whether you're a woman or you're a minority and you get through that door, you then have the choice. Are you going to slam that door and everybody else like you's face or are you going to hold the door open? Um, you know, Michelle Obama has spoken very well about that um, constantly. And I think when you're, when we see Republicans that are the minority kind of get trotted out as, you know, this shield against any charges of sexism or racism, it's incredibly see-through. And by the way, I don't think it's been effective at all. Just look at Nikki Haley as an example, right? Her campaign hasn't gotten off the ground. And Scott barely yeah. got a day of coverage. So That's I mean, right. people are being used and exploited and it's really transparent. And I think it's pretty pathetic. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to the ballot box, doesn't it? And, and you know, the, the likes of these people are enjoying a period of, of success at the moment. But you could argue that with Trump's indictment and, you know, future prosecutions or whatever's going to come his way, that, you know, if you did have him replaced with another candidate, and if it was Ron DeSantis, I mean, I know we're going to talk about him a bit later, but it's only you only really need a few votes to swing the you know US politics away from extremism and then things like you know dealing with banning of of assault rifles or dealing you know codifying abortion into federal law i mean these things 
could be done pretty quickly if there is enough of a, a majority. So do you think that there is a chance that, you know, just looking ahead a couple of years or a year and a half as it is now, that that actually people like Marjorie Taylor Greene could suddenly just disappear from U.S. politics? I think there is a good chance. I think it 100% depends on Joe Biden winning re-election in 2024. We need to not go backwards anymore. We can't afford one step backwards at this point. We have to keep charging ahead to defend democracy. So I do see that future if we have the time. But you also have to understand, I think, yes, winning elections, passing laws, all that stuff is critically important. But there has been now a decades-long effort to basically miseducate the American public in so many ways. That's why attacking public education is often agenda item number one for Republicans, because you can pass laws that say, you know, you have to be tolerant or you have the right to choose, all these things. But when you have people so poisoned in the way they think and the way they logic and reason, that itself is such a lasting problem for democracy. It will, it will take us decades to fix that problem. Um, so we need that time. Let's just talk about education for a moment, because you, you work with this um, a non-profit in D.C., the Institute for Education. Um, because I personally feel that education is at the heart of all of this, isn't it? That, that in order to kind of break down racial barriers, that you just need to tell people the truth about American history and have people understand that we are in a much better place now you know, than we were 50, 60, 70 years ago. I mean, it, it is a good trajectory. There are, there are far less lynchings now than there were. The Ku Klux Klan are, are effectively, you know, on hold for the time being. I mean, who only knows what? I mean, it's, they're obviously doing their thing in slightly different ways now. In legislators. But, <laughs> the legislators, thank you very much. But... I really feel like education is often overlooked in terms of improving the country going forward. And the U.S. is right down the rankings on world world education, isn't it? I mean, it's it's like at the number 22 or 23 in terms of countries around the world for education. So how are we going to change that, considering that we seem to have far-right, you know, MAGA Republicans banning books and, and, and teachers nervous to teach American history for fear of being fired. I mean, that's a sorry state of affairs, isn't it? Just that arena of education. I think the number one thing on this is Republicans are so much better organized at that local school board level. If we could just get anyone, any interested parent, anyone watching this to run for school board as a Democrat and make sure that they defend their kids' rights, other kids' rights, to just learn true, unbiased information, that would be a sea change in this country. But right now, Republicans really do have a grip on local school boards, and that's been a huge part of this problem. And then, of course, who goes on to run for other offices? People that got that local experience. So I think thinking about it that way and not always wondering, you know, what the national headline is about Ron DeSantis's latest attack on education, that's important too. But looking at your own local space and seeing what you can do there is critical. And by the way, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of engagement. A lot of that's coming from online. I myself am, you know, putting out a lot of content online. Um, but it's really important that everyone also understands we need you to take actions in real life. Um, so it's not just about sharing that tweet or making sure you're up to date on the news. Go engage locally. Part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because you are a 
you know, you are a kind of news influencer. You are a kind of education influencer. You are you are very active on social media, and you're very good at kind of communicating the the message that you want to put out there. In contrast to that, you know, you're what you're up against are you know the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who um, she tweeted all that uh, this guy Jake uh, Tashira did was tell the truth about troops being on the ground in Ukraine and a lot more. Ask yourself who is the real enemy, a young low-level National Guardsman or the administration that is waging war in Ukraine, a non-NATO nation against nuclear Russia without war powers. I mean, to somebody who is on the right, who is seeing that, that message, it makes a lot of sense. Do you see what I mean? Like the way that she puts it together for people who are not educated necessarily or people who are just, they only came into the, really took politics seriously when Donald Trump kind of gave them license to, you know, and then kind of lied to them about how he thought about them. They're going to kind of see her messaging, which is, you know, pretty, pretty powerful and be like, yeah, she's making total sense. I think one thing, and I've studied mass movements quite a bit, um, is when you look at a mass movement or populism, often what happens is it's this group of people that in their personal lives, in their work lives, they consider themselves a failure, really. And it's hard to admit that. But what they do instead is they want to leave behind their own individual self and become part of this mass movement and put absolutely everything in that. And when you see the red hats, that's what they're doing. They're identifying with right MAGA or Trumpism and Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's all part of the same effort. This is their last ditch effort. This is what to them. I think, you know, it's either Trumpism survives or they are irrelevant. They are totally left behind. They are out of it. That's not actually true when you look at the policies being put forth by Democrats, which are pretty, you know, targeted at serving all Americans. I think we've seen Joe Biden be a president for all Americans. It's, it is compelling messaging on their side. By the way, I mean, Midas Touch, I think, is, is an organization I focused on because a couple years ago when it started up, I think I did have a, a few thoughts about, you know, is this the right thing to do, to jump into communicating in this sort of more in-your-face, viral way? And I think the answer is absolutely because there's a difference, right? I mean, we're putting out true information. We're talking right everything we're saying right now. You could find a news source to support a vetted news source. Um, what Marjorie Taylor Greene's doing is making up lies. Now, I think the difference is what I'm trying to do is I'm not trying to win over anybody that's following Marjorie Taylor Greene's talking points. You know, I'm trying to talk to the Democratic Party base. I think it's been a consistent point of feedback that. Democrats aren't the best at messaging. I think we've had better and better messengers elevated. Um, and I, I know not everyone agrees with AOC on everything, but she's a pretty good messenger for the Democratic Party. Um, you know, the younger blood we have, pretty good messengers. Diversity, broad coalition building, that's what we need. Messengers that can target different groups. Um, and online, right, I think a lot of times Democrats think about things in a way that's too academic. Um, I spent my last 10 years mostly in academic spaces, and I, I've really tried to focus on how do I not lose touch with what's happening in the world? How do I speak to people like a normal human? And I think that's really important to think about, even just the appearance of, you know, what's the content being put out by Democrats? Is it boring? Is it engaging? You know, they're not on TikTok necessarily. A few people just joined. Um, so those are all controversial issues, I know, but at the end of the day, We've got to talk to our people. We've got to mobilize, you know, the hundred million voters that didn't show up in 2016. So I'm not worried about, you know, who Marjorie Taylor Greene's already run over, won over. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good point about, 
using social media and the way that Democrats are trying to communicate because what you describe with the red hats is a cult and you know cults for conform very quickly and people especially people who are down on their luck they want to belong to something and and so I, I wouldn't even say that, that that Trumpism and the MAGA brigade is really a political movement it's actually a, it's actually a cult Democrats on the, on the other side uh, and on the other hand are a different breed, aren't they? Because they don't worship Joe Biden. They don't. They you know they they're not going to pay his legal fees if he gets into legal jeopardy. They're not going to give him their last dime. The dollar coin with his face on it, for right. sure. Yeah, or the or the, or the or the or the or the trading cards or any of that stuff. Um, and I think this is something that Republicans fail to understand. They think that Democrats have that same relationship with Biden that that Republicans have with Trump and and it's simply not the case and and isn't that really the mark of democracy and a, a true democratic political movement versus a cult is that you know it's about evolution it's about you know switching in and out your leaders i mean i would love to see hakeem jeffries get elevated i could see that guy as a as an amazing leader for you know on on the on the national and the world stage as a future president. I mean, we have lots of options. And actually, the, the Republicans don't because they've opted for the cult mentality. Even though Trump is going to, you know, going to likely be prosecuted and, you know, Jack Smith is now looking at how he's been utilizing all this fundraising and right. uh, pretending that it was because the election was stolen when he knew full well it wasn't stolen, but it was a good opportunity to make make money. I mean, and that is such a different breed, isn't it, to the way that Democrats operate? And I think just to the point about the cults, right, it's often they are the Trump followers, the Fox News viewers. Those are the marks for these people. We saw it, right? This is not new. Steve Bannon, right, got indicted for that We Build the Wall scheme and Trump pardoned him on yeah. the way out of office. But we've seen again and again, I mean, they're exploiting their base in every way possible. They have a very low opinion of these people. Um, so it's a total grift. And it's, it's, a, it's a sad situation. I know that people have lost family members really to this. So, um, you know, mentally, I think obviously a lot of people have lost family members from COVID and other things that could have likely been mitigated if we had real leadership. But Well, yeah, if Trump didn't say that COVID was going to be gone in a couple of weeks, you'll see it'll be gone, he said. Um, could the Democrats do a better job of communicating through social media and, you know, using people such as yourself to kind of get that message across? Because, you know, my point about Marjorie Taylor Greene as frustrating and as untruthful as most of her material is, it is delivered with a punch. And so it, it, it cuts through the noise because it's so outrageous or it's so ridiculous or it's just so stupid. And, and, and Democrats could take a leaf out of the Republican playbook when it comes to communications, surely. I think absolutely yes, but we do have to acknowledge, I think, one difference, which is that Marjorie Taylor Greene's communicating with a very different audience. It's not as sophisticated, and I hate to use that word, but of an audience in what they're looking for in content. Because like we talked about, right, she can put out any tweet as garbled, as incorrect, as misspelled as possible, and they're going to jump all over it just because they're going to amplify whatever she says. You're not going to see that from Democrats. It's just not going to happen. Um, but that doesn't mean that we give up the fight. I think 
what, what we've seen, and I, I just saw this news article this week, um, I'm sure you caught it too in Axios, about the Biden administration partnering with TikTok influencers. I think, you know, it was fact-checked a little. There was some miscommunication on the reporting. But I actually wouldn't wouldn't lean into that because I think what you already have is you have great influencers doing this on their own, coming up with their own messaging, following the news and fact-checking very closely. And of course, the White House is playing a role in putting out statements and giving that information and surely they could find more ways to share that information. But I don't think, you know, sort of institutionalizing that is necessarily going to be helpful. What is going to be helpful is getting our wide breadth of leaders, our deep bench, by the way, Gretchen Whitmer is great at social media, if you see her TikToks, amazing, Um, showing those faces and those voices and those people, because at the end of the day, if you put Joe Biden on TikTok, he's still going to come across like an old white guy that's not going to necessarily engage or excite Gen Z. I think that's the reality of the situation. But you get, you know, a bunch of different creators to, on their own accord, tell you why they're excited about this candidate or why it's so important that we defend democracy. Um, and you have that thousands of times over. That's really powerful. I think, you know, one thing that's missing on the left, and it's been tried a couple times, is that there is a right wing blogosphere that is incredibly powerful, and I've been targeted by it before, but basically what they do is they jump on one story, one person, and then you have 10 articles in sort of a mid-tier news outlet, an unvetted sort of inaccurate news outlet, and it drives then into Fox News, and then sometimes the mainstream media jumps on it because that's what they do. Um, and so that is very powerful, and we need. I do think we need to build something like that. We do need to build um, liberal media that is not dishonest media, but at this time, you know, the media institutions we're used to are sort of crumbling. That's the reality. Their business model is not really the model of the future. Um, they're thinking that through. It is going to be about dispersed creators, kind of that people trust, giving the news. And so, how do we tap into that? And how do we make sure that we still are staying, you know, trustworthy and honest, and not sort of doing what the right is doing, but communicating in a form that's more engaging? Isn't that really what you know? Midas Touch has done, hasn't it? It's kind of captured a, a, a movement and a moment. And, you know, it, it certainly helped get Joe Biden elected. And I think what we try and do under the kind of Midas Touch umbrella is just be completely objective about what's happening, because there is only one truthful timeline, you know, and, and, and this is the thing that I, I talk about on the show quite a bit where people and certainly with what I do with 5-Minute News, which is a daily unbiased news service, you know, because I will cover Trump being indicted, for example, then people will complain and say, well, you're not, un- you're not unbiased. <laughs> and it's like, right. that's not my bias. That's your positive bias. And, and you just want it to be completely clean. And the reality is that, that, that history is history. What is happening in the world is important and it needs to be referenced and it needs to be reported. And, you know, if you choose to take offense to that, then that is your bias. That is not my bias for reporting it. And and that is something that Americans are not really used to because a whole generation, you know, since the 1970s, really, and, and, and the end of Reagan, grew up with opinion news and with biased legacy media. And, and that is a problem, isn't it? That is a problem, but I think also... 
there is this level of like unintentional bias that we see happen in media because there is a stunning lack of diversity in mainstream media. You know, I saw a picture and it was an important message to send, but of the Wall Street Journal tweeting out, you know, a photo of their New York newsroom in solidarity with the reporter detained in Russia. And you look at those pictures and there's maybe two black people out of hundreds of staff. And so then you see that's the same paper that, hey, decided that to put out an op-ed about the SVB failure being because of diversity in an equity and inclusion efforts. That's not actually a coincidence, right? And we see that over and over again. So a lot of what I do is I just try to take the news, the breaking news, and frame it in a way that I think is fair, is thoughtful, is paying attention to a lot of what I think the media is missing. And, you know, I mean, you started this by saying, let's try not to talk about Trump. Media is going to talk about Trump every day, 24-7. So it's on us to share the other stories that matter and the information that matters. You know, I mean, people in my circle, I think they would consider themselves pretty educated and informed, and yet I'll have conversations with them, and they won't know the latest five things, ten things that happened on any really important story to our democracy. You know, I was talking to somebody yesterday that was like, oh, I was following the Tennessee thing, and I was like, oh, well, you know, they like two of them got back in. They didn't actually expel, you know, the woman that was white. Um... And they were like, oh, really? I missed that. And it's like, how did you miss that? Yeah. You know, I mean, th that's important. So I think just understanding that, you know, we do have a voice. I mean, th th it's sad what's going on with Twitter to me right now because, you know, I'm a kid, a random kid from public school in New York who decided that I really was passionate about Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 and got on Twitter and started sharing my ideas. And I was able to, you know, build a following. Now I create tens of millions of impressions a month on there. And same with TikTok. And these are powerful tools. And of course, as they get attacked or Undermined, and you know, maybe we'll see. Tick, maybe Twitter won't be the public square that it has been in the 2024 election. Um, it's important to understand we can communicate the stories we want to communicate. It's a, I agree with you about Twitter, and I feel very sad that it has taken the direction that it has because it has been a very, you know, I've been on it for for years, and and I was kind of forced to go on it by the radio station that I worked for in the UK, you know, and I was reluctant initially, but actually. It's enabled me to, you know, meet people like yourself and, and kind of be part of the national conversation. My worry, though, is that if Twitter goes away, this kind of town square that you talk about, I mean, in the UK, we have a lot more town square opportunities. You know, the, the, the TV news does kind of debate shows about, about the news every single week. We have a big show on the BBC called Question Time where... You know, people online are talking about it and people in the audience are asking questions and it's really, you know, you have politicians there and they have to answer and it's really like, you really feel like you've had a good kind of bite of the of the turkey leg when you eat, when you, when you watch that show. But I don't feel like there is anything like that here in the US, that kind of opportunity to talk back, to put politicians on the stand and to interrogate them and, and just to get a kind of... Here's another thing that's very interesting about, about British media is that they always interview people in the street. So the reporter will do the story and then they'll find like five people in the street and they'll be like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And I don't really see that on TV here. You know, it gives you a kind of flavor of what people are thinking about, cross-section of the public. And I, I just well, feel that the that Washington ever, uh, bubble, the I'm Washington bubble is just like, that's, that's Washington. And then everybody else has nothing to do with politics. No, absolutely. I mean, th I think I've only seen that style on like the Daily Show when they go up to people and I'm like, where's Canada? And <laughs> they don't yeah. know. Um, right. But no, I, I do think that that can serve us. And also, we've seen people create that themselves with sort of these YouTube conversations and yeah. channels and back and forths. 
Uh, I think, you know, the Democratic Party would be wise to think of how they can create a format that's really interesting like that. You know, I often, I'm, I love reality television, and I, one of the biggest things I always tell anyone I can talk to at the Democratic Party is they should be watching reality TV, first of all, because that's the world we're operating in, but also learn from reality TV how the format and the setup and the production communicate something interesting to people about the mundane. And you can do that by, for example, you know, not necessarily putting our broad coalition in a 20-person primary where they're all going to say something for two seconds, they're going to fight with each other. That's not the way to build a good coalition. If you look at a show like RuPaul's Drag Race or something, right, that is a show that they have a cast of 15 people. All 15 people, basically, no matter how they do in that show, end up a star after. And that would be the dream for the Democratic Party, to be able to say, yes, Joe Biden's our candidate in 2024, but as we tell you about what he's going to do in this next term, we also want to show you the next 20 superstars that we have. And show a bride, they don't all have to agree on everything. That's the point. They, they absolutely don't have to agree on everything. But they do agree that we need to defend our democracy, and they have different new ideas. Let's talk about ideas, too. I think that's another thing that gets lost. It's okay. Because then you find that people have stuff in common. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? The, 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 po the political parties in the U.S. have been presented as enemies, or the, the Republicans seem to kind of, there's this kind of hatred towards the other side. And that's not how you run a government. You know, a government is about consensus, and it's about putting the people first and not the, not the politician or the, you know, the leader in, in this case. And, well, and you do find consensus, and also you change people's minds when you converse. And look, like, we need different people to do different things. So is, is Clarence Thomas going to be impeached and removed? I can tell you right now, absolutely not. Is it still helpful and important that we have people like AOC yeah. who are going to go call for his impeachment every single day, probably for the next couple of weeks? Yes, that matters. Is that message going to be as important if it comes from, you know, a stuffy older white senator who's conducted, you know, bipartisan business for four decades? Probably not. And that's probably not a good way to use that senator. So... There's no harm in that. But I do see online, right, you see people say, oh, this is so dumb. Why is she going down this road? That's okay. Like, that's resonating with some people, right? Just like Marjorie Taylor Greene has those people randomly retweeting her. Yeah. AOC is doing that in a much more healthy way for the Democratic Party. Let it happen. Don't worry about it. Embrace it, in fact, if you can. Um, so I think just thinking about how do you meet people where they are? How do you not get stuck up? in the sort of nitty gritty and details, which I think, you know, was obviously a lesson learned for some people, hopefully from 2016, letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, but I think we've seen a lot of sort of decline in that. I'm not as worried that we're going to see sort of a spoiler effort or sort of that level of division with Democrats. Um, but, you know, I mean, talking about this Thomas impeachment, right, it's a moment that Republicans would be really shrewd about just drilling in on for months. It's all they would be talking about. We should be talking about this. We should be talking about this for a long time. We should try as best we can to cause some investigation, keep following up, right? I mean, how many people were criticizing Nancy Pelosi, if you can imagine this, right, a year or two ago, saying that the January 6th committee was a political disaster, a miscalculation, that she should have had Jim Jordan on that committee. So you can't listen to the pundits. You can't listen to the news, I mean, on what the strategy should be. That was so critical. So I think think about Clarence Thomas the same way, right? I want to I talk more about uh, Clarence Thomas and his relationship with this uh, Republican mega donor. It's, I mean, we're talking about kind of large sums of money here. We're going to take a quick pause for our sponsor this week, and then we'll talk more here on The Weekend Show. 
I've never been able to compost before. I've been keeping food scraps in a bag, which doesn't smell very nice. And then I got a Lomi. A Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps to dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs and it's really quiet. And thanks to Lomi, I have way less garbage each week. That means it's not going to landfill and producing methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. I feel so great knowing that I'm composting and creating soil instead of waste that I basically now have a limitless supply of dirt for my garden. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make clean-up after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash weekend and use the promo code weekend to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash weekend and use promo code weekend at checkout. Food waste is gross. Let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can. We're back with Kaivan Shroff here on The Weekend Show. I'm Anthony Davis. Uh, the conservative mega-donor Harlan Crow purchased three properties belonging to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his family in a transaction worth more than $100,000 that Thomas never reported. Uh, this was 2014, a real estate deal that shines a new light on Thomas's decades-old relationship with Crow, who's a real estate magnate and longtime financier for conservative causes. Um, and then it turns out there was all these vacations as well, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, and trips to his kind of private places, you know, things that money couldn't buy, basically. Now, this doesn't surprise anybody, does it? <laughs> it's like nobody, nobody was surprised. But there is serious and strong evidence here that this is wrongdoing, that Clarence Thomas clearly doesn't really seem to care about. I mean, these, he's been on the court for 30 years. I mean, these people, certainly in the United States, are on such a pedestal the, you know, these Supreme Court justices, they are gods, certainly amongst the conservatives, right? And it's a conservative stacked court now. So they they really are the, the, the kind of the modern day gods of, of America. I think it's not surprising, by the way, we should add that apparently Clarence Thomas's mom was is still living in the property that was purchased. So incredibly sketchy thing going on in this situation. And Clarence Thomas, you know, of course, for decades, everybody's known that he's not a good guy, right? Anita Hill exposed him. She's only been vindicated year after year, more and more. He hasn't reported household income properly. There's been a number of episodes over the years. But I think when you zoom out and you look at, and I just graduated from um, Harvard Law School last year, law students today are not going to law school with great reverence for the Supreme Court or even our legal system, and it's because of actions like this. And I think you have to think long-term the damage that that does to a democracy when you can't believe in the highest court in the land. And really, Justice Roberts' legacy, and I've met him a couple times, he's a very sort of mild guy, he has really overseen what's the popular delegitimization of the Supreme Court, and that's damaging for democracy. Let's list some of the things, right? I mean, Amy Coney Barrett's husband opens up a law shop in D.C., hides the client's list. Robert's wife has firms, law firms, paying her that are arguing in front of her husband. Doesn't disclose it. Obviously, Kavanaugh's debts, we still don't know who paid that off. 
Alito going to private dinners, reportedly leaking that Hobby Lobby decision. So the corruption just continues and continues, and there's no accountability. And I think you know Sheldon Whitehouse has really been a leader on demanding accountability. And it's it's a difficult situation because at the end of the day, the ethics code that applies to every single judge in the country doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. And in the past, it's sort of been a self-compliance standard. And now we obviously need something more than that. The difficulty is it's an unsettled question of law to some extent. Who gets to control um, the ethics that the Supreme Court is bound by? Because it's a sort of division of government issue. I think I'm quite naive about how evil some people can be, right? I mean, because you you try to intellectualize this, you know, why wouldn't you want to disclose? Why wouldn't, you know, if you've got this job, you know, on the on the top court in the country, the, the, right? So right, it's really like no it's such that. an important part of your of your role to be completely transparent, you know? And and look, Thomas is the is arguably the most conservative or far right on the court and we now know that his wife was very much involved in the january 6th insurrection and this is now being investigated and which he didn't recuse from right the issues which he he, that's right he didn't recuse from and and he claimed and she claimed that they never talk about these things which was just a jokes i mean is it the case that people like thomas and maybe Kavanaugh as well because of that testimony that he gave about, you know, liking beer and, and you know, sexual exploits and everything yeah. else. That there are just an increasing number of people, not just in the US, obviously, around the world, who are just bad eggs, like just not good people. And you could argue that it's people that, are, that do not have a goodness in them are actually more ruthless and therefore more likely to succeed in in business or in work or in career or whatever. You know, these are the people that invariably do very well. You know, the Rupert Murdochs of this world, they are, they they don't seem to have a a conscience, a social conscience, and yet they, they get to the very top. Is that the case with Clarence Thomas? He's just a bad, a bad guy. Well, I think it's important to consider this isn't really a new trend, right? When you look at Clarence Thomas, he's been on the court for decades. When you look at Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, he was sexually assaulting those people decades ago. So it's really about how the right has captured our Supreme Court at the law school level, investing in FedSoc. And by the way, I think a lot of top law schools, Harvard included, are absolutely complicit in this. They absolutely elevate conservatives and sort of buy into this idea that they're underrepresented or, you know, a minority on campus. That is not the case. They have extra power and influence because, by the way, if you're going to go to Harvard Law School and you want to be a federal judge and you're one of the, you know, less conservatives there, you don't have to be excellent. You'll probably get a decent clerkship with a Trump-appointed judge. So just think about how the power works in that dynamic. Um, And then I think to your other point, right, there is a difference between authority and power. Um, You know, authority, yes, you can say kind of you have to do this. And for a while, maybe people will do that. But there's this lack of legitimacy there that we're seeing, you know, right now on this court, for example, that you can't stay in control that way for a long time. We, we know that from history. You really do have to get buy-in and credibility. And I think that's what Democrats, sometimes they're a little slow to ask because they want to bring people with them. Now, sometimes they're too slow, but there is a balance there. Um, I think, you know, the, the problem with this court right now is that they are 
ripping away the rights of Americans at this time that they are also engaging in incredibly unethical and maybe in Thomas's case unlawful behavior. And that is really going to accelerate sort of the lack of trust and respect for our system. Because, you know, Roe, the overturning of Roe, which of course was leaked and during that period between it being leaked and it which, becoming just to law, no one did anything about it. I mean, it could have been codified into, into federal law in that period, couldn't it? And let's just remember, Marjorie Taylor Greene called the Roe leaker an insurrectionist. So really contrast yeah. that with her opinion about, you know, this uh, FBI leaker is just insane. Um, but absolutely, I mean, that leak of that Roe decision, which, by the way, now I think a lot of people are su- suspecting maybe a conservative did, but just look at the sort of totally illegitimate investigation that the Supreme Court decided to conduct there where they gave everyone else an affidavit except for the justices. I mean, just insane. Yet another sort of failure on Justice Roberts' part. I will say one thing I think Democrats should do and we can you know, all do, whether we're in office or not, keep the pressure up. I've met a lot of these justices, they are always on the social scene in D.C. They care about their reputation. They really do. And that's why they've been sort of, in recent years, putting out these press releases. And, you know, I mean, all they have at this point is what history is going to say about them. You think John Roberts wants to keep walking into these rooms being looked at like he's a MAGA nut job? I mean, absolutely not. I can tell you, something like that haunts him. So I think it's, it's worth sort of tossing out this dirty laundry and making sure we focus on it. It is embarrassing to them, and I think at the end of the day, because they have this lifetime appointment and because, you know, it doesn't seem like there is any authority to hold them accountable to some extent, um, you know, that's what we got. So let's let's run with it. And it goes back to this idea that Americans are not well represented. The people who are who are in these positions of authority and power and making decisions, whether it be on the Supreme Court or local courts, they are they they don't represent the people. You know, the country is far more progressive than a lot of these lawmakers. And and things like abortion rights, um, they they are there is no appetite for it on the national stage. But because of the corruption in politics, these decisions are being made on behalf of the country by people who have got their own agenda. A hundred percent, and not even ideologically. Look at who these people are. They don't resonate with Americans. They they don't have the backgrounds of most Americans. Even you know the more representative hires we've recently had on the court. Most of the justices are millionaires. Most of them have gone to an Ivy League school. You know, I mean, that's not the American population, and they're deciding everything for the country. And of course, it's even less legitimate. I think I saw somewhere right in the in the last maybe five six decades, we haven't had a majority Democrat. Supreme Court, yet Democrats have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. So how do you reconcile those two facts and feel good about what our justice system is doing? So should Biden pack the court? I mean, should there be, because there's no rules, is there, on how many justices there needs to be? I mean, this is this is just kind of precedent, but there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't add a, a couple of, uh, of Democrat uh, justices to the lineup and, and try and balance things out a bit. I think what's more important, and I think it's an option, all options should be on the table, I would think about it this way. Number one priority is winning re-election. I think coming out with a policy like that, and let's call it a wedge issue that maybe not all Democrats agree on, and some sort of more moderate people or the Republicans that have come over because they hate Trump um, might balk at, I would save those ideas until after 2024. But I do think the, the issue is a fair question to raise. But we'll see, right? I mean, if, if you get four more years with the Democratic president in office, all of a sudden, we don't know who's going to be staying around on that court. 
So there could be a lot of opportunities. You mentioned AOC a couple of times. Um, I, from from the, my European perspective, which is kind of what make, gives this program a kind of an edge, I guess, is okay. that I do see America from a different angle. She is not a progressive from where I'm from. She is just normal, right? The fact that she kind of speaks up for what Americans call progressive issues makes no sense to me because she is just a kind of normal, active, hardworking politician. Now, there's plenty, plenty of terrible ones in, in the UK and in, in Europe, of course. But her, her ideals, you know, it's a bit like Biden has shifted a little bit to the center, hasn't he, since his, since his election and I think maybe going into 2024, he's he shifted. He was always a moderate guy, but he's certainly shifted a little bit more to the center. You'll never hear the words Green New Deal kind of fall out of the lips of Joe Biden. And, and that is a shame, isn't it? Because as all of this infighting continues, and you must feel this as a younger person, and I have children, so I think about it for them as well. No one is talking about climate change, right? It's like AOC is like the only person that kind of mentions it. But no one is talking about it on the scale that it needs to be talked about. Because, you know, Trump claimed in his interview with Tucker Carlson the other day that, you know, forget climate change, nuclear is what people should be talking about. He was trying to kind of bring about a, a nuclear war. That's kind of, you know, what he's pushing for. But actually, the, the planet and the warming and, you know, just look at Fort Lauderdale International Airport a few days ago. I mean, they shut it for three days. It was underwater. I mean, this is the evidence of climate change. It's like, you know, Netflix don't look up. You know, we are in a situation now where it's actually happening and still people are taking no interest or not connecting the dots and ignoring the science. I mean, how does America progress on the world stage and prosper if, if climate is not part of these daily conversations? I do think we are lucky and that, you know, obviously AOC is talking about these issues. And part of that is because she is of my generation and Gen Z sort of zeitgeist where this issue is one of the top issues for young voters. So I think if we had 10 years go by and, you know, the country still exists, we have a lot of people that care about this issue. Now we're running out of time, so it's very hard to communicate that urgency. I will say I don't necessarily think that the Green New Deal or, you know, defund police, and I'm not saying that that was sort of proposed by AOC or whoever, but we do get hung up on these labels and these phrasings and these wordings that often, I think, get detached from really smart groups that were using them and thinking them through maybe in an academic setting or in a certain specific setting that it really made sense to the people having the conversation. But then nobody thought about, you know, okay, well, either this isn't landing with the public or the Republican machine is so powerful that they've now made this word toxic. Um, and we should just stick to the same ideas and let's rebrand it. Let's get good at that communication like we talked about before. So I think, you know, getting hung up on is Biden going to say the words Green New Deal? Um, I think it's more about, you know, is Biden going to keep his commitments that he campaigned on on climate change? And, you know, I think if you look at the most sort of fervid supporters of climate change, you know, activism, they would say probably he's not kept a lot of those promises. I think if you look at a moderate who's thinking about, well, democracy is really sliding right now and we have 30 other problems right here in my face. And I think Biden's done some things on climate change that are good. They certainly, you know, I think 
take the issue seriously. Um, they certainly aren't denying the issue, but of course there's more work to be done. It's a tricky situation because at this moment, I can tell you, Biden saying climate change is his number one agenda item isn't going to serve well for 2024. So and He's also that, opening up federal land for oil drilling you know with a plan to not allow that to continue in the future because i think you know they kind of were caught up in some legal issues the sale already happening and the rights being distributed in a sort of complicated way that made it hard to to stop what was happening not saying it was impossible but that was definitely one. i suppose the reason it's difficult for people who are engaging in politics to kind of get their head around climate change is because it's kind of it's not that it's invisible. Obviously, we're seeing these physical manifestations of it. But it's the fact that it's been politicized the same way that the pandemic was politicized. And, you know, and that goes back, I think, with climate change, it goes back to kind of Al Gore, really. The fact that he was, like, given that job. And and, and so people saw it as a kind of political thing from an early stage. Whereas if they kind of gave both a Republican and a Democrat the, 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 the job of communicating or looking into the future climate. You know, America is the second most polluting country on the planet and is doing the least about it. I think that that's a fair argument. I Sometimes I do react to thinking like that in a sense of that's really expecting a lot of good faith on the Republicans' part, and I just don't believe it exists. So I, I think that yeah. part of, right, there was a, a very intentional effort to make it Political. It wasn't just that, oh, they said Al Gore is in charge of the issue and suddenly it's political. Then they spent decades and tons of money trying to make sure that people really thought this was some democratic. Yeah, and the fossil fuel industry, obviously. And we've seen that in so many spaces where on issues that most Americans agree on, like gun control, right? I mean, most Americans agree about a number of gun reforms. And yet somehow it gets explained as if it's this 50-50, you know, Republican-Democrat divide. That's actually not the case at all. So I think it's a, it's a tricky balance to strike. What I will say on climate change, too, is it is being seen, not by everyone. It's being seen by, you know, communities of color, poor communities, more than others. And so I do think often people in power, it seems like a distant issue that's years away, decades away. But it's really affecting people's everyday lives um, in many parts of the country. Let's just um, think about, you know going forward with Clarence Thomas, just coming back to that conversation, just to kind of wrap it up. You said at the beginning that, you know, the chances of him resigning are kind of near near impossible. And I, I totally get that. And But isn't that in itself a kind of tragedy? You know, we, I mean, in the UK, we had like three prime ministers in three weeks, right? You know, people feel a thing called shame still. And there is shame associated with, you know, screwing up the economy as Liz trusted very briefly or David Cameron who brought about the Brexit vote and lost so he resigned you know my, my political history is leaders who take account or accountability and they accept that they are embarrassed enough to say okay I need to go it doesn't seem to happen here very often does it you know and we can ask the same thing of Senator Diane Feinstein you know just as a stick it out until you're a hundred years old no matter what has gone under the bridge. I think one of the interesting things to me, and I think this is for full circle for two reasons. One, because we did a great job not talking about Trump, but I am going to bring him up. And we started talking yeah. about education as well when we started. And I think one of the lessons that at least I grew up learning, and I think most of my peers as well, was that it was so important to heal the nation that, you know, Nixon was pardoned. And really, 
if you look at the data, only 35% of Americans at the time thought that was the right decision. Now you look over a decade of media coverage and storytelling and pushing this narrative that it was so essential, and then you do see a majority of Americans support the decision. But we don't know, right? It could have gone the other way. The lesson we could have all learned was that accountability is so important. And so when we talk about Trump and these indictments, I actually think the flip of that lesson is exactly the case, right? This is such an important moment, and I know a lot of people were dismissive when those indictments came down as, oh, you know, it's not gonna lead to anything or what's really gonna happen. Even the indictments coming down, we are so far away from what a normal democracy functions like, that was a win, I think. Um, so we really do need to think about accountability and really formalize and codify our systems of accountability. We can't rely on, you know, good faith actors trying to do the best thing for America, as we've seen. So maybe the change that could come off the back of Clarence Thomas's controversy is to have a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices, some, you know, uh, some kind of legislation that means that they do have to operate to the same code as more junior judges. Of course. Now, the issue there, right, which I think I do want people to understand this because I see a lot of Democrats being really critical of sort of lack of action on this issue is at the end of the day, the Supreme Court could say it's up to us to interpret the Constitution and we don't agree that Congress can bind us to these ethics rules, right? So that's always an option and there is a conservative court there. So I think that's just one thing to keep in mind. Now, as I said earlier, I still think this is a fight worth having. Let's push it, right? I mean, America's in decline. Our democracy is in decline. That is a fact. So let's, you know, pull out all the stops to see what we can... accomplish here. Let's talk about uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida. Um, Florida's seeing some extreme weather at the moment and (laughs) I saw one of the, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's it's not a good thing and he's not in Florida. He's actually doing a kind of countrywide tour selling his, selling himself as a future um, presidential candidate, even having not announced that he's going to do that. You can still read in Florida. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, He uh, signed into law very late on Thursday night um, a bill approved by the Republican-dominated Florida legislature to ban abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Um, It takes effect only if the state's current 15-week ban is upheld in an ongoing legal challenge that's before the state Supreme Court, which is controlled by conservatives. Well, the policy will have wider implications for abortion access throughout the South in the wake of the um, decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And and it leaves decisions about abortion access to states. As we know, Alabama, Louisiana and Mississippi have all banned abortion at all stages of pregnancy. Uh, Georgia forbids the procedure after cardiac activity can be detected, which conservatives claim is six weeks. It's actually not the case. I mean, they have conservatives have have been using very um, sensitive ultrasound, very like modern ultrasound, to hear what is, because I've been reading a lot about this, which is actually just the flutter of cells in an embryo, because, you know, the, the embryo doesn't become a fetus until eight weeks. So at six weeks, this is a flutter of cells. It's not a heartbeat. So this whole kind of heartbeat act and This whole kind of talking about, oh, the baby, the baby. We're talking about an embryo that isn't yet a fetus, that doesn't have a heartbeat. You do not know if that that, that flutter of cells is going to be a viable organ, let alone whether the pregnancy will be viable. And yet they are preventing women from making decisions on their own and and offering the, the services that they need to access. This is what DeSantis thinks the whole country deserves. 
It's it's shameful. I think, you know, two things to start, and it's nothing new to say, but the reality is the number one killer of American children is gun violence, and Republicans don't care at all about that issue. So it's really a stretch, I think, to say they're defending these, you know, lives that aren't even lives. Um, but I think more to the point, I've been seeing so many doctors coming out and discussing the reality that, to your point, a six-week abortion ban is essentially a total abortion ban. Well, women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. It's often the case, yeah. And I think you look at DeSantis, who, by the way, I think by all accounts is totally flailing with some reporting that he may even put on hold his campaign. I don't think that's going to happen. I think he will run. But his ideas are not popular. I mean, the fact that Gavin Newsom over in California can keep whamming him because he's so anti-freedom. I mean, people in Florida, Americans in Florida right now have less rights than Americans around the country. Nobody wants that. I mean, freedom of the press being restricted. Women's freedom restricted. Can't identify as gay in school. Can't, you know, read books about Anne Frank in school. So what we're seeing is just total extremism in every single way. So, and by the way, I mean, MAGA's learning its lesson pretty fast. It's not going to stop with just Democrats, right? We saw he had police try to remove Trump supporters that showed up to his book event. So, you know, it's never going to stop. And at some point, politics is obviously the art of addition and not subtraction. And there's only so many groups and people you can ban before you don't have enough voters left to be in office. The, the polling is interesting. Uh, 538 has polled the former President Trump receiving 49.3% of the national vote. Uh, Ron DeSantis, who hasn't officially entered the race, receiving 262 I mean, basically not much more than half of where Trump is at. Uh, Pence is at 5.8%. Nikki Haley, who we mentioned earlier, at 4.3%. I mean, my personal view is that Trump is going to you know, he's going to take this and it's going to be Biden versus Trump in 2024 and, and Trump will lose. <laughs> and then he will, you know, he will call election, you know, he will deny that the election was, was uh, uh, an honest one and will do exactly the same story. And then hopefully or eventually he will get prosecuted for one of this kind of litany of crimes. That's just my kind of, you know, high speed prediction. That makes sense to me too. Right, because there isn't really another uh, republic, uh, sorry, democratic candidate who is presenting themselves. Um, yes. And you know, in a way, I would like to see Joe Biden win it and then do a year and say, "Okay, I'm handing it over to Kamala Harris." I think you know those are one of the things that we'll see what happens. He's healthy <laughs> by all accounts right now. He's done a good job in his first term. I think there's no reason to doubt he wouldn't continue down that path. What I do think is really interesting, since we're talking about DeSantis's polling, um, I do think that we're seeing an interesting alignment right now where people want to credit these indictments with sort of this rally around Trump effect. But also what's also happened in the last month or two, like I mentioned, is that DeSantis is falling flat. So I think for a lot of people who thought maybe he was their savior from Trump, especially more moderate Republicans, or at least the sort of ones that want to be part of society, high society, um, you know, I think they're realizing, oh, you know, DeSantis isn't going to do it for us. He's kind of a flop. He's not going to succeed on the national stage. Let's go back to Trump. Who else do we have? So there's both of those things are happening at once, and we don't really know what to attribute the effect to. Because Trump could potentially run from prison. I mean, if Absolutely, that happens. Absolutely, right. You know, I mean, there's no constitutional bar on a felon running right. for office like that, for president like that. So. Which in itself is crazy. I mean, just think about the fact that, like, we seem to have rules for what you can, you know, you can't, like, spit gum on the street, but you can run for office from prison. But you can be a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> um. 
I mean, there's going to be some serious rivalry between Trump and DeSantis. It's already well, started. We, it is starting, but all of these alternatives to Trump, they are so scared of him. It's pathetic to watch, right? I mean, when they do take a swipe, it's a veiled swipe. They don't name him. They sort of do this implication type thing. Um, and that's, you can't win like that. So if they're going to run for this, they need to really run for it and take those shots and call Trump out. I mean, it's been so weak and embarrassing, really, to see uh, at this point. So the longer they wait to do that, the more, of course, Trump's going to be the front runner, and it's going to be an insurmountable challenge uh, in a month, probably, if DeSantis doesn't announce, right? So, But this six-week abortion ban, signing that off in the middle of the night on, on Thursday, you know, he was hoping that there wouldn't be too much press coverage of that. Right. There's also right. this other law that Florida prosecutors um, trying capital felony cases would need to convince only two-thirds of the 12-member jury that someone who is convicted deserves the death penalty rather than a unanimous decision by a, ju- a jury. I mean, this these are very extreme right-wing, far-right policies for Florida, which Ron DeSantis has convinced himself, because partly because of the people behind him, uh, Christina Pushel, as we know, is one of his uh, kind of, you know, main campaign advisors. She blocked me. I guess she didn't like what I was tweeting. <laughs> well, if you haven't been blocked by her, then you're, you're nobody as far as I'm concerned. But um, I think I'm, I'm blocked as well. But, you know, he is, he is taking these types of policies around the country and is convinced that this is what people want. Now, is that him just being naive? And being so far down the kind of Christian conservative rabbit hole that that he actually thinks that this is what people want? Or is this just a plan to, a bit like Steve Bannon wanting to cause chaos, turn the country upside down, create confusion, and just sow these kind of conservative seeds? I think it's less about the latter and more what we were discussing before, right? Like Harlan Crow, who's he doing this for? Is it really for Floridians who want this and support this? Or is it for GOP, super right-wing, super Christian mega donors who kind of own and run the party? Right. I think it's probably more for that, which is why, right, you do sign this bill, even though it's probably really unpopular as you're about to launch a presidential campaign. Who is he, who is he answering to, I think, is the relevant question, and I think we have some clue. Um, but beyond that, there's this just likability factor, right? His policies aren't popular. He is not a likable guy. Even Republicans I talk to concede this point. And I think, you know, an example that comes to mind is him trying to be relatable over the Ron DeSanctimonious label saying, I don't know how to spell it. It's like, dude, you went to Harvard and Yale. I think you can manage to spell, you know, a mid-level SAT word, but it really says more about what you think about these voters that you want to bond basically over what illiteracy, that's what you have to connect on. I mean, he's, he's just so dry. He has he doesn't have the charisma that Trump offers. So, you know, he can't build that cult of personality at all. And I think when we see if we see him in a debate, um, you know, it's only going to be worse. I mean, it's going to be messy as well, you know, because no one's going to be pulling any punches. And it's almost like it's a bit like celebrity, isn't it? You know, it's like it's like this. This this is an audition to be the most famous person on the planet. It's not really about being a lawmaker or bringing the country together or or trying to kind of deal with the climate and deal with the, the problems that the country has. It's just about being the brightest star and, the, you know, the, 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 the wealthiest and most powerful person on the planet. And I think the one sort of thing we all have to be responsible about is it is going to be messy. And it is going to be, like I told you before, like reality television, and it's going to be 
they're all this shot in Freud, and it's going to be enjoyable to watch these guys shred each other apart. Still, I would argue, it's bad for the country. It's bad for our democracy. We've seen in 2016, right, how that sort of negative attention can still lead to the White House. So I wouldn't just, like, celebrate that as we see it. I would be really thoughtful about, you know, who we're amplifying, when, and on what issues. Okay. We have to finish, but I'm very grateful to you for making the time. I know you're busy. And... I'm I'm thrilled for your your social media and the way that you communicate with people because your generation is you know I sound like an old person now I feel like I'm 23 year old and I'm I'm actually 48 you wouldn't believe it but the 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 fact that you know I I I recognize that the the future for American politics is communication and and that is something that you are excelling at and there's something that a lot of us could learn from and so I'm very grateful to you. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate all your show does. So, Thank you. My thanks to Kaivon Shroff. I'm Anthony Davis. Please subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast. And don't forget to support me on Patreon. Patreon.com slash 5-Minute News for exclusive videos, bonus content, and some exclusive access. The 5-Minute News daily podcast drops every morning so you can hear me tell you what's happening around the world while you make your coffee. Subscribe to that and join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News weekend show with Midas Touch. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.